So I want us to be thinking uh, about how we define ourselves. We often look at that when we look at the, the scriptures. Do we define ourselves the way that the scriptures say or that the way the world says? And probably someplace that hits close to home for maybe more, that, more so for some than others is our bank accounts do not define us. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Because I think now, more than any time, in, in my lifetime at least, there's no greater emphasis on the haves and the have-nots than what we see right now. And should we really be worried between disparity of income, or is that even the point at all? In the world, whether we realize its influence on us or not, makes its assumptions based on external appearances, based on circumstances, based on circumstantial uh, events in people's lives. And whether we want to admit it or not, we are influenced by Marxist ideologies that tell us that the rich are privileged and that the rich have an advantage and they're to be envied. And the poor have the chips stacked against them and they're limited by their circumstances. And that their, their value comes along with their possessions and power or lack thereof. But God doesn't look in the outward appearances as man does. Jesus looks at the heart and the intent of the heart and what flows out of it. And today we're going to see that the scribes are condemned, not because of their wealth or their status, but their love of their wealth and their status. Their, 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 their pride in their position. And we're going to see a condemnation of the scribes, but also a commendation of a poor woman. Not because of her poverty, but because of her generosity and, and devotion that exceeds her poverty. So before we get in this, many people have used this text to make a, a, a broad uh, statement case study for, for wealth and poverty. This does not mean that every rich person is corrupt. It does not mean that every poor person is commendable. But what it does show is that it is not your wealth or your standing that defines you in the eyes of Jesus. And so let's jump into our text in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to pick up in verse 38. I'm going to read through verse 44. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and at the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor woman came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. Let's pray. God, you are awesome and rich beyond compare. You own everything. There is nothing 
in all of creation, in all of heaven and earth, that is not under your power and control. You do not need anything. You are not swayed by anyone. There is nothing we can add to you. Forgive us, Lord, how often we define ourselves by our riches and our possessions rather than defining ourselves by whose we are. Lord, forgive our selfishness and our greed. We tend toward discontentment. We tend toward jealousy. We tend toward selfishness. Lord, free us from the burden of the love of money, the desire for earthly fame and riches. Remind us that through faith we are rich in Christ. We have abundant possessions that are imperishable, that are kept for us, undefiled. We possess spiritual blessings now that outweigh all, that outweigh all the money in the temple. All the tithes and all the offerings across the world cannot compare to the spiritual blessings in Christ. Lord, give your people a kingdom perspective. Grant us humility. Grant us wisdom as we open your word. Grant us generosity and love for those around us. May we stand firm in the gospel. May we hold everything else loosely. And may you be glorified in our time here this evening. That your spirit would teach us and remind us and point us to Jesus Christ. That he may be glorified in everything we say and do. And as we go out of this building this week, may we be ambassadors for his kingdom with his name ever on our lips. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus begins his teaching saying, beware the scribes. Now, they're front and center in these interchanges that we've seen the last couple weeks. We've got a, a wise scribe who's, who's pretty close to the kingdom. Then we get a challenge to the scribes theology last week. If you don't remember, these are the teachers of the law. These are the legal experts. These are the, the lawyers, as Mark and Luke call them. These are the ones who interpret, who transmit, and who apply the Jewish law. And so these are supposed to be the experts. But as we're going to see in verses 38 through 40, this is more the lifestyles of the rich and shameless. And if you want more of this, you can read all of Matthew 23. I don't have time to go through it. But Jesus goes through all the woes of the scribes and the Pharisees. Last week, we looked at their theology. This week, what's going to expose them is their actions. So we're going to focus on the verbs, what they are doing, what the nature of their heart tells us about them. Beware, look out for, pay attention, don't be like them. Beware the scribes. Now, just for reiteration, if you're in Palestine, if you're in the Jewish culture under Roman rule, these guys had all the power and all the influence. They had theological, civil, and legal authority. 
in a community that had no sacred secular, secular distinction. There was no separation of church and state. There was the church and the state. As much rule as Roman would, the, the Roman government would give them, the scribes had. And so they had all this at their fingertips. And they thought themselves very important. If you read the Talmud and, and how the rabbis would speak about themselves, they would speak of themselves as the saints, as the prophets, as the princes. And that they expected to be treating God as such. So when the scribe interacts with Jesus and he asks the greatest commandment, Jesus tells him to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Are the actions we see here today indicative of these scribes or of these these commandments in the life of the scribes? Because the scribe who talked to Jesus affirmed these teachings. But let's see the practice of the scribes. First thing we're going to see, beware of the scribes who like Notice, it's not just that they walk around in robes, we'll get there in a second, but they like it. They love it. They love to draw attention to themselves. They like to walk around. They parade themselves in front of the commoners to show their importance. They like to walk around with uh, long robes. And so it was not uncommon to wear robes. They would often wear these, these prayer shawls. That would cover their heads and it would, it would flow down. And they were often made of expensive material. So they were made for prayer, but they would parade around in them all day. So that you would see how much money they have and how important they, have, that they, they are. And it shows how they are different and set apart from everyone else. And then they goes a step further. They like to walk around in, lo- in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplace. Well, doesn't everybody? If you, one of the things that was strange when I moved to the South, you grew up in, in, in New York, uh, people don't look you in the eye and say hello. They walk right, right by you. The, the, the Southern hospitality is, is a real thing. I thought it was weird when people would, would smile and say hi, like, I don't know you. Why, why are we interchanging right now? This is, a, this is an adjustment for me. And so we think, yeah, we want to be, we want greetings when we go out to the store. We want people to say hi to us. Now, this is different. Because they saw themselves as royalty, you were expected to stand and greet them and pay them homage. And they felt offended if you didn't stop what you were doing when they walked through the marketplace to give them the attention that they thought they deserved. They liked the long robes to draw attention to themselves. And they liked the, 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 the greetings so they could feel important. And that everyone would recognize how great they were. They don't stop there. It's not just in the marketplace. They wanted primacy in every area of life, in the public marketplace, but also the best seats in the synagogue. Now, we've talked about the layout of the synagogue before. So the synagogue is kind of like your, your high school gym, um, except probably not as comfortable. And it's, it, if you remember your, your bleachers that would come out of the wall and you, and you sit on those, that's where the average people would, would come. They would sit in these, in these tiered bleachers, and, and the teachers, those who were reading and teaching, they would be on the floor facing everyone else. But the first seats in the synagogue were on the floor. These are your courtside seats facing everyone else. We're not sitting with the rest of you to learn. We're here as authorities to look at you. And they, and, and they, they desired this. They, they fed off of this because it showed their importance and their distinction 
from everywhere else. So it wasn't just in, in the public realm in the marketplace. It wasn't just in the religious realm in the synagogue. It was in the parties too. So this language here of the places of honor at feasts. Now this is not the type of feast, the, the three major feasts of the year where everyone would come. These are, these are regular events. This is, this is more uh, common in a world where, where hospitality was, was, a, was a matter of shame and honor. When you had a feast, when you, cooked, when, when you killed an animal, when you brought all this food together, you would invite the who's who. You would invite the most important people in the community. And this is what Jesus spoke out against. You would invite people who could further your career or who could, or who could help you or, or who could just stroke your ego. And so they wanted to be invited to all of these and they wanted the first seats. They wanted to sit at the head of the table. So as we think about the teachings of Jesus, where he says, when you, when you have these feasts, invite those who can't repay you anything. When you get invited to these feasts, don't sit at the first seat, sit at the last so you're not moved. These were the, the polar opposites of all of Jesus' teaching about these social gatherings. And so this is kind of painting the picture of their actions, of their, their practices. And before we go any further, and before we get too critical, let's be careful. Because how often are we tempted to do this to our favorite pastors or our favorite theologians? Or even worse, how often are we tempted and desiring of this attention? How often do we want to be recognized and we want to sit at the first seats? How often do we want people to, to, to greet us and get excited every time we walk in the room? The scribes are no different than many country club Christians today. They dress up nice. They go through the motions. They want to sit in the prominent seats. Their hearts do not love the Lord, do not love his church. But we're not done with them. Oh, wait, there's more. It's not just on a public level. They are offensive to the weakest and disproportionate members of Jewish society. Verse 40, they also devour widows' houses. This is a strong picture of selfish gluttons who eat everything in the home. These hungry hippos, if you will, who take advantage of the widows. Uh, is this literal? Perhaps. Uh, there are historical instances of rabbis and uh, Pharisees and scribes having this reputation of being invited in and just eating and drinking everything in the house. Uh, so there's, there's probably some of that. Um, but also, they, they prided themselves in taking any kind of gift or appreciation or anything that people in the community would give them. It didn't matter if that was all they had. But it even gets worse than that. There are examples of their legal precedent. Some of them were such legal sticklers that they would not allow the debt of a husband who was passed on to his wife, his, his widow, after he passes, to go unpaid. They, were, they would often foreclose on the homes of widows so that, in their mind, justice could be done, that every cent would be repaid. This is the reputation of these men. So whether it's eating or whether it is devouring their livelihood, 
This is the problem. And so this is the indictment in Ezekiel 34. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel for me. Ezekiel, one of the major prophets. If you get to the big three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34. If you're familiar with Ezekiel, uh, like the prophets, usually God does not send a prophet when everything's going good. God doesn't send a prophet and say, hey, you guys are doing great. Keep up the good work. Uh, I will... I will send you your, your blessing soon. There's a great condemnation on the people, and it's against the shepherds. Now, who are the shepherds? The shepherds are the ones who are supposed to be caring for, teaching, for, teaching and providing for the sheep. Chapter 34, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to look at a couple of excerpts, but I encourage you to read through it. There is a great condemnation against those who are called to shepherd, but feed themselves and not the sheep. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And then he goes on to everything that they're doing that they should not be doing. But for our purposes, I want to skip down to verse nine. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. This this language of devouring their, their homes. They were meant to be shepherds, but they were in fact wolves. That they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. There's the bad news. But the good news is that God himself is a greater shepherd than any of these human shepherds who are taking advantage of the sheep. Let's keep reading. I want to pick up uh, in verse 15. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament. I love the commanding nature here and the way that God speaks. Look at the emphasis here. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the sprayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. This is the great shepherd. This is the one who will fulfill what these wicked shepherds could not. But the promises get better. Skipping down to verse 22. Um, Verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace. Last week, we looked at the the nature of who Jesus is. The son of David. 
But when this was written, David was dead for hundreds of years. This is not speaking of David. This is speaking of someone who come from the line of David. Someone who, who is, is representative, representative of the house of Judah. This is the chief shepherd. This is the one who will seek and care for the sheep. This is the one who knows them by name and will feed them and gather them in and care for them. This is the one in contrast to those who devour those who are hurting, those who are poor, lording their power over them. The gospel is beautiful because Jesus came to save from sins. Absolutely. But we remember that he's a shepherd. He came to feed. He came to protect. He came to guide. And he says, as their shepherd, no one can snatch them out of my hand. If you are his, you are in his hand and no one can ever snatch you. And so even when there are wicked, false teachers, even when there are faulty shepherds, I've heard so many people who have church hurt and who have been and who have been beat up out of, under terrible pastors. And they're tempted to just throw Christianity out. You're missing the point. Never lose sight of the chief shepherd because of faulty under shepherds. Our faith should never be based on. God forbid your faith is based on my faithfulness. Or Jesse's faithfulness. Because if you are looking for us to be your functional saviors, you are missing the point and you are shooting way too low. Amen. And so this is meant to make you upset when you see them act this way. This is meant to get our attention because these are not the ones who are supposed to be leading us. And if you are called to shepherd God's people, you shepherd as he does. You shepherd as the chief shepherd does. Feeding them. Making them lie down. Bringing back the strayed, binding up the injured, strengthening the weak. I want to continue looking at them. We're not done with the, the scribes just yet, but I got to move on quickly. These false shepherds devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. If you don't know what the word pretense means, this is hypocrisy's uglier sister. This is the, the, the hypocrite wears a mask and just plays something different. But the one who acts in, in, in pretense does something deliberately to... Um, they, they, they put on this, this front of doing something for good to seem a certain way, but they are really trying to manipulate. They are really trying to sway someone to, to what they want them to do. They, they, they want to look a certain way. There is, there, there is malice of forethought in this. They are wanting to get you to like them on false pretenses. So they pray these, these long, lengthy prayers so you know how righteous they are and how unrighteous you are. They're concealing their motives so they can look good in front of others. Kind of like politicians smiling with their hands in your pockets. Or pastors smiling with their hands in your pockets. Which is why I don't smile. Um, <laughs> once in a while. Only when I'm being sarcastic. That's the only time I smile. Or... We all know these people who, the moment you meet them, they're bragging about all the good things that, that they've done. You know, whenever, you, whenever you, you, you talk to someone 
and you ask them if they're a Christian, you try to share the gospel with, oh, of course I'm a Christian. I've done this good thing and this good thing and this good thing and this good thing. That's a pretense. They want you to see how good they are. They're, they're showing their Christianity by their own righteousness. That is what these wicked scribes are doing. Now, before you, you, you use this before your, your next meal and you know, remind someone, don't pray this long prayer because we want to eat. This is not a private prayer. This is not a family prayer. This is what Jesus described. It was the common practice. They would stand in the, the, the public square. And they would pray out loud. Let me give you an example. Turn to Luke chapter 18. It's one of my favorite parables. Maybe my favorite parable in all scriptures. So powerful. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, listen, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is not in his head. This is out of his lips. Remember what we saw in Ezekiel 34. I will shepherd my sheep. I will seek them out. Listen to the prayer of the Pharisee. Standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, so different, standing far off. The Pharisee thought he was worthy to stand close to the temple. He was close to God and he told God so. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. but The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does Jesus say they will receive greater condemnation because they know better. Like James tells us in James 3.1. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. They knew the way to the law, but they trusted in their own righteousness. They, they told God and everyone else how good they were. That is their condemnation. That is their false religion. What we see in them is what we so often see in Christian culture. It's beautiful on the outside. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You can paint up the outside of a tomb all you want, but inside there are dead people and it stinks. And no one wants to be there. It's like putting a paint job on a car with no engine. It is beautiful, but it's not going anywhere. It's like a fake Rolex, counterfeit money, whatever you want to use for the analogy. It is worth nothing. You can pretty it up all you want. These were men who prettied everything up on the outside, but it was dead and worthless inside. That was their condemnation. And so when we are tempted to be jealous of the wicked when they prosper, when we are tempted to seek 
equality. Well, what, what we really just need is for the money from these rich people to go to these poor people, then everything will be fine. Is that really what they need? We're going to stay in Luke. Look at Luke 16. Jesus gives us another parable here. Gives us great perspective on the disparity between the rich and the poor. It does not get more different. There is no greater disparity than the rich man in Lazarus. Luke 16, verse 9. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, and he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Is the greater need more money, or is it faith in Christ? Because even though he suffered for a time, he is now with the comforter. And he will always be comforted. He will never cease to be comforted. He is the one who is now feasting. He is the one who is now cared for and provided for. The trappings of money are so alluring and so easy for us to get caught up in and think that money will solve problems. Do not multiply someone's problem of of poverty with giving them another problem of riches. Point them to Christ. There is no comfort in your possessions. And so now I want to transition from the the ones who devour the widows and exploit the widows to the widow herself. So Jesus sits down opposite the treasury and the, the, the treasury. We've looked at the uh, layout of the temple before you get the outer court of the Gentiles. The treasury was in the court of the women. So you get one step closer to the temple itself. There's one more court of, of the men that were that was inside of that. But here, any any Jew, male or female, could come and give their offering. And the um, the uh, treasury was a system of, of boxes. These shofar ram's horns would would be delegated for different things, uh, for food for the priests, for building funds, for um, benevolence. Uh, there were like 13 boxes, I, I think. And each horn would be in a different box. And there would be a priest there explaining what each one was, and they would call out what the person would, would give as, as they came up. Real nice practice, huh? And so you would come and you would, you would put your, your coins in and it would spin down the ram's horn and it would drop into the, the coffers, so to speak. So this is what Jesus is watching. Before we go any further, I want you to notice this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched. Before we go any further, Jesus was a people watcher. Jesus was observant. Jesus was not the attention, the attention seeker at the party. He's the one who sat back. He's the one you got to watch out for. Who sits back and he watches everyone's movements. It's amazing to me that he just sat back and watched. He was deliberate. He wasn't, he wasn't hurrying around. He wasn't 
upset by all these, these interactions and the teachers coming after him. He sat and he watched hundreds of people going by. Thousands, probably. And he picks out her. Isn't that incredible? If you were here last week, you opened up Psalm 110. The prophecy of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The one who David sees sitting at the right hand of God in power and majesty and glory is sitting in the temple watching this poor widow. The same king of kings and lord of lords, the same chief shepherd sees her, knows her. Knows her heart, knows her circumstances. There is no distinction between his power and his majesty and his intimacy and his concern for the lowly. This is a a beautiful picture of Jesus that we can just brush past. Another good thing we can observe from this is how is Jesus such a great teacher? As a man, he was quiet. He sat and he watched. He observed He paid attention. And when there was something worthy of teaching, he calls his disciples over. So here's what Jesus observes. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. Called them over. There's something that I need you to see. And here's what you have to understand about a poor widow. She has two strikes against her. The two worst strikes in Jewish culture. If you were poor, it's very different than poverty in our context. There's no safety net. There's no upward mobility. It is a life sentence. If you were poor, you will always be poor. No one is going to pull you out of your your poverty. This This is a career path. And if you are a woman, you have no representative. If your husband dies and you have no family members... There is no one to care for you. There is no one who could buy you land. There, there's, there's, there's no unemployment office that you can go to and, and get a job. She would have to live day by day. Maybe cleaning homes. Maybe threshing a little bit of wheat. Hopefully getting to the corner of someone's field to pull up scraps to eat. We don't know if she had children or not. This is her state. This is why... Kinsmen redeemers were needed. Because the widows had no option. If a a male relative did not come and redeem them, pay the price for them to be provided for, she would have nothing. This is where she finds herself. And then there's, 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 there's many provisions in the Old Testament to care for them. But how different is she than the scribes? I don't think that these two accounts are next to each other by accident. Good storytellers. Great teachers. They make strong comparisons by putting contrasting examples side by side. There could not be a greater contrasting example than the scribes and this widow. Let's get into the details here. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than... All those who are contributing to the offering box. That's a fascinating statement. More than all those. Oh, wait, I skipped over verse 42. 
And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. This is important, which make a penny. So let's talk about these, these two copper coins. Uh, obviously, they didn't have pennies then, but we don't have quadrants now. Quadrants are uh, the, the, the smallest Roman denomination. One quadrant was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Let's put this in perspective. A denarius is a day's wages. This is not your $15 an hour day wage. This is probably about $20 for sunup to sundown labor. One sixty-fourth of that. One-eighth of one, uh, of one eight, you know, uh, one uh, eight section period. Like, that is a, a little. Someone said six minutes of work. I don't think the math works out. But you get the point. She didn't even have one quadrant. She had two copper coins. The, the, the word for quadrant is stripped. It is so thin, you can almost see through it. It's the, the smallest amount of metal that they can make and, and still make a coin. She had to get two smaller coins. The King James calls them mites. To equal one quadrant. Worth less than our penny. Especially today. And that was the minimum amount she could give. And so when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. All of those, all of the boxes, all the rich people, everyone's offering, hers was greater than everyone else's combined. She didn't care that it was her last coins. She didn't care the value. One of the things I love to see is when parents teach their children to tithe, to give, because they don't understand the value of money. And when you, when you teach them when, when they were young, yeah, I'll give this. Sure, why not? Yes, your children are selfish and they're depraved, but at some point, before they're too old to understand, they will, they, they will do this. And it's such a beautiful thing because they have not been so swayed by money as we are. But how many adults have I heard, like, I, I, I have to make more before I can tithe. I have to be in this situation before I can give offerings. Look who Jesus commends. You think she said, I, I, need, to, I need to make more before I will give? He says, beware of the scribes. And he tells the disciples, behold, look at this poor widow. She is worth emulating. She gave more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. This is something really important. She gave more than everyone else. Notice what Jesus shows him here. There's a divine economy going on. He does not count the offering. He weighs it. Even though it is not greater in number, it has greater weight. This is how God sees giving. This is how God sees stewardship. He does not count it. He weighs it. In every other area of her life, she has less. The word for poverty that Jesus uses later, it means last. Less coming up second. She is never first in anything, but here she is first. It is amazing how opposite is this to our world who determines people's value by how much they can contribute or says you cannot be important and poor at the same time. You must first be rich to be important. Jesus flips our worldly economy upside down. 
And the gospel call to count the cost is not to run the numbers and see if I can financially make this work. But it is to count the cost to the follower. How much will it cost you? It cost her everything. And it was worth it. That is the cost to follow Jesus. And it weighs more than all the bank accounts of all of the wealthy Jews in all of Jerusalem. To give your all to Christ is more than the bank accounts of Jeff Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett. And you can go down the list. Doesn't matter. And it's a great lesson for us about partiality. Because our desire is typically to look for the bigger, visually pleasing offerings. What bigger thing can I do? What bigger thing can we look at? And not overlooking the small gifts. Most church budgets are met by small, faithful gifts over time. But yet most pastors I have met seek out the biggest givers and show them special treatment. How does Jesus justify this divine exchange rate? Verse 44, for they all contribute out of their abundance. Literally more than you could need. But she out of her poverty, lacking what is even necessary. She has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's have a little exercise here. Which one are we? So look at, your, look at your spending habits. How easy is it for you to buy a meal? How easy for, is it for you to buy a new phone, a new toy for you, your kids, or your dog? How easy is it to spend money when it's burning a hole in your pocket? Do we live out of abundance or out of poverty? Have you ever given to the Lord and literally not had one penny left over to eat? I haven't. Jesus spoke often on money since it is such a great source of idolatry. Let's get real for a moment because this this hits home. Because for some of you, it's easy to give. Some of you, writing big checks is easy. You do it often and it doesn't hurt. You barely even notice it. Some of you, it is hard to give. And $5 is so significant and it is great and pleasing to the Lord. Some of you love your money so much you don't give it all. You find your comfort and security in it. But for many of you, and I know this to be true, you are so grateful for how the Lord has blessed you and given generously to you that you give. And it's easy to give. And it is a joy to give. So which one of these is not for me to determine? I don't look at your giving statements or anything like that. But I will have to ask you a question. As Jesus sits on his throne and he watches What does he see when he sees your giving habits? What does he see when he sees your connection to your money? I'm thankful that on the whole, we are a church that is generous and gives faithfully. And plenty or in little. Let us be faithful givers in devotion to the Lord and storing up kingdom riches. This woman realized how fleeting money was. That it didn't define her, didn't limit her, and she gave unto the Lord. May we be like this widow. Because our shepherd knows our bank accounts and our hearts, as well as what we need. This woman gave everything, 
all she had to live on, her whole livelihood. Think about that. She could not possibly give more. None of us have ever given like that. She gave to the Lord and went home hungry. That's convicting. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She looked much more like our Savior. Who gave everything for us. He did not have a possession to his name. Did not have a home to lay his head in. Did not stay on his throne. But condescended and took on flesh. Gave everything for us. Even his very life. That we might have life in him. This woman is a beautiful picture of the gospel. She is a beautiful reminder of the sacrifice of our Savior given for us. Did not hold the things of this world too tightly. Gave them up freely in love of the Lord. And she's a perfectly fitting conclusion to this chapter. Because what we've seen in this chapter, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. She was more concerned with giving to God than giving to Caesar. She knew it was God's. She knew what was, what was Caesar's. We also, like Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees, her hope was not in this life. She looked forward. Her hope was in, in life with the Lord, in a resurrected life. Because this life, the cards were stacked against her. And also, like the scribes, she knew what it means to love God. With all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, and all her money. And in that, giving to the work of the Lord and therefore loving others. So, application, how do we bring this home? What is the secret? Paul gave us the secret in Philippians 2. We read this this morning in intercessory prayer. But I want to bring it to your remembrance again. Philippians 4, excuse me. Everyone's favorite uh, silicone bracelet bumper sticker verse taken out of context. In its full context, Philippians 4.13 is a gospel proclamation. Not a, I can do all things I want to do because Jesus is my get out of doing hard things card. Philippians 4.11. This is the secret. How do we do what this woman has done? For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is the secret. To be content, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, whether you are important or no one knows your name, be content and glorify God in it. I know how to be brought low. Paul talks about having ragged clothes and being beaten and being starved. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I've been a rich Pharisee. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The point of that is that Christ is his strength in no matter what season. Even if you don't finish the 10K, even if you don't, even if Steph Curry doesn't score 50 points. Christ is the strength to the believer no matter where you are. This woman maybe never even spoke to Jesus. But she loved the Lord and he was her strength. And if we want to get past our struggles toward money or with a lack of money. Our strength comes from Christ.
How often are we tempted to think that if I appear more religious or the one who appears more religious is more faithful, the one who dresses nicer, the one who seems that God is blessing them. How often we heard people talk about their financial uh, situation as being blessed. Is that what it really means to be blessed in the Lord? Because how often are we tempted to think that more money and more giving equals more pleasing to God or greater opportunity for ministry? We don't just stop there. How many of us think that our gifts are not enough? Well, I, won't, I can't do anything important in the church because I can't preach or I can't sing. If I only had more gifts, if I only had more money, if God only gave me more of this, what you're saying is, God, you are wrong. You haven't given me enough. I am not content with what you've given me. We've all done that. I've seen many people love, serve, and give joyfully, generously, when no one is watching for the glory of God. And that is what pleases him. He determined who you are, your personality, where you will work, what you would do for the rest of your life. You can glorify him wherever you are. And much or little. I want to close with this. Uh, we were out of town last week. We visited a small church plant. I mean, very small. They started a few weeks ago. And uh, we went and visited and they were in a small space cut out in a used clothing boutique. And... Uh, they didn't dress like Christians. They had t-shirts and sneakers and hats on. And, uh, but they did have big godly beards, so they had that going for them. <laughs> but they were joyful people. It was about, I don't know, 10, 12 adults, maybe 10 kids. Um, and when we sat down, he began to preach. He preached like the whole city was listening. He proclaimed the gospel that gave us chills. By the end of it, I'm amazed at the work of God and I'm, and I'm just frozen, praising the Lord that he has so many faithful. Cherie's crying. She's just overwhelmed with the power of the gospel. And when they closed and sung, they were singing like there was 10,000 of them. And it was so encouraging. They were just shouting at the top of their lungs. The, for God's glory would save them and they wanted to reach their whole they want to reach their whole city with the gospel I'm honored to be called to minister alone men like that and their wives and their families and their friends who are alongside them let us be that church whether five or five thousand let us proclaim the gospel with confidence let us shout and sing with joy because our God has given us everything we need in this life and even more so in the life to come. We're going to sing and respond in a moment with a song out of uh, Proverbs 30. Give me neither, neither poverty nor riches. Give me the food that is needful for me. Lest I, become poor, lest I become rich and forget you. Lest I become poor and steal. Let us... Go before our God in prayer and praise him, the giver of every good gift, and let us be content. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for sending your son to be our shepherd. Every one of us, like sheep gone astray, not seeking after God, how could we? But you sought us, drew us home, bought us as our kinsman redeemer. We are no different than this poor widow. Not a penny to our name. No one to stand in our place. No one to care for us. And you stood in our place and cared for us. Lord, we praise you for the gospel. That frees us from the trappings of greed and sin and materialism. And it convicts us when needed. When a poor widow puts us all to shame. Lord, we ask that your people would be faithful in our hearts and in our wallets. In our mind and our affections and our actions. We ask that there is... If there's anyone here today who is still trusting in themselves, who still thinks that their money will save them and make them happy, who still stands like the righteous, self-righteous Pharisee and lists all of his good deeds to you, break them, Lord. Break them in their arrogance, in their pride. If it is one of us, Lord, break us. But if they do not know you, break them for the first time. May they cry out to you. May they come empty handed like this widow. Falling before you. In love, in adoration, in worship, in surrender, in faith, in repentance. To the only name which anyone can be saved. Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.